Welcome back. This is our second lecture on Europe. In this lecture, we're going to look at the population and settlement geography, as well as the cultural geography of the region. So we're going to start off with the population, uh, first of all. Um, as I mentioned earlier, about a half a billion people live in Europe. Um, and really, if we look at this population map, this density map, we can identify two densely settled axes focused mainly on industry. Uh, and that would be in the industrial core of, um, of these two axes. So the first one is from Italy's Po River Valley that I pointed out when we talked about the physical geography down in this area. And extends up through western Switzerland, up through here. And then um, into uh, what are sometimes referred to as the Benelux countries, as well as Paris. We can point out Paris right in here. And then into the Be uh, Benelux countries, which are uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg in this area here. And then this axis also continues up through London and then up through the UK. Our second axis, if you wish to call it that, uh, begins in Prague over in here, okay, and extends through southeastern Poland and then through the Germany, especially into the Ruhr Valley right in this area in here, uh, and then actually continues and kind of intersects with the other axis up into northern UK, the northern part of the UK, northeastern England. Uh, as you can see from the map, the rest of Europe tends to be uh, sparser, sparser settled and is sometimes referred to the agricultural periphery. So the areas that I just pointed out in here are sometimes referred to as the industrial core, while the rest of Europe is sometimes is referred to as the agricultural periphery. And as we know, most money in Europe is focused in the core areas, so these would be the wealthier areas. And if you remember from the introduction uh, to Europe, I talked about how levels of economic development, and particularly human development, are greatest in the western and northern part of Europe, and they decline as you move to the east and to the south, and that's clearly the case here. This distribution has caused some economic problems throughout modern Europe, and particularly uh, in the EU, because in a lot of cases, the wealthier countries don't want to help to support some of the poorer countries. Uh, but we'll talk more about that later, uh, probably in the third lecture. Let's talk a little bit about um, some of the demographic trends that are occurring in this region. Uh, some, we might actually say that in many parts of Europe, some kind, or at least some of the countries in Europe are in, actually in the fifth stage of the demographic transition. Uh, all of Europe is pretty much in the last stage of the demographic transition. Birth rates in most countries are lower than death rates, uh, which means that po eventually populations are going to start to decline. Uh, immigration uh, prevents population loss in many countries. Uh, Italy has a population, as, let's see if we can find Italy on this on this chart, it has a population of about 60 million people. Uh, and it's estimated that without immigration in 20 years, the population will be down to about 55 million. Uh, so that gives you an indication of how uh, things are changing uh, demographically within Europe. Uh, so as I mentioned, immigration prevents population losses in many of the regions. Uh, some countries are offering money to parents who have children. Germany, for example, will uh, pay parents $650 per child, uh, as well as Austria and France also have programs to encourage families to uh, have more children so that their populations um, 
don't decline. Causes for this drop in population in some areas, uh, well, in most of the areas, actually, is caused by uh, increasing uh, uh, labor force participation by women, lack of adequate housing, especially in Eastern Europe, and widespread contraception. So let's take a look at some of the data here on this chart to see what's going on. So you can see the population of the various countries. Uh, Germany has the highest, the largest population in the region with about uh, 81.6 million people. And then we can go down to the UK has 62.2 million, Italy with 60.5. And those are probably the population uh, giants within Europe. Uh, look, the population densities in most places aren't very high, uh, except for some of the smaller countries. Um, so you can see, for example, Austria has a population density of 100, uh, which is um, a, a little more than the United States. Belgium, on the other hand, has a very high population density. Of course, Monaco does because it's a very, very small country. Um, Netherlands has a high population density, and it's, it's actually much higher uh, in the uh, places like Rotterdam, The Hague, Amsterdam, and so forth, uh, than this indicates, but about 400 people. So that's uh, fairly high as well. Uh, but many of the other countries, particularly the peripheral countries, have uh, uh, relatively uh, sparse population densities, or small population densities, if you wish. So let's look at the rates of natural increase. These are actually pretty fascinating to look at. So you can see many countries are right around zero. Here we have Austria, zero, Belgium, 0.2, France, 0.4. Germany has a negative rate of natural increase, which means its population is declining. Same with Bulgaria, same with Hungary, Romania, and so forth. And so you can see the issue, the population and issues in Europe are not so much with population growth. Obviously, they're not with population growth. They're actually going to be with population decline. And they're, not, they're also not with a uh, high proportion of the population being young, as we saw in, for example, in Sub-Saharan Africa, but with a high proportion of their populations become elderly. Uh, and obviously, these, uh, as the population ages, and the population begins to decline, we have fewer and fewer people in the labor force to be able to support those on Social Security. And most countries in, um, well, all the countries pretty much in, in Europe, except for those in Eastern Europe, uh, have uh, well-established uh, social welfare systems. So if you would calculate the doubling time of some of these populations, I'm sure they would be in the hundreds of years. Uh, and we could actually um, calculate uh, the negative growth for some of these countries and when their populations uh, will be cut in half, if we wished. Uh, total fertility rates, as you can see, in most countries are below replacement level. I don't even know if we can find one that would be at replacement level. Here we go. Ireland at 2.1. I'm sorry, Iceland at 2.1 and Ireland at 2.1 are the only ones that actually meet replacement level. Uh, Ireland, obviously, uh, there is no abortion legal in Ireland, at least not at this time. Um, and that might be one of the answers uh, for, um, um, and actually contraception is actually very much frowned upon in Ireland as well. So that could be one of the answers why, you know, they have a little bit higher total fertility rate, but certainly not uh, very high at, at all relative to some other parts of the world. 
percent urban, I think one of the things that we'll find when we look at the percent urban, we'll find higher levels of urbanization in Western and Northern Europe. So for example, we can see Belgium at 99%, France at 77%, Luxembourg 83%, uh, obviously Monaco, very small country, uh, actually a city-state 100%, Netherlands 66 Switzerland 73 United Kingdom 80%, and so forth. So as I mentioned in the introduction, levels of urbanization um, are highest in the northern part of Europe and the western part of Europe, and they actually uh, decline as you move further to the east and further to the south. And I already mentioned about the uh, uh, the percent under 15, uh, relatively uh, small uh, proportion uh, compared to some of the other regions of the world that we've already looked at, particularly sub-Saharan Africa and Southwest Asia and North, uh, and North Africa. Uh, but uh, the uh, elderly population, the proportion of the elderly population is uh, uh, relatively high compared to those regions of the world and will only continue to, uh, to get higher. Uh, net migration, we'll talk more about migration in a few minutes, but you can see most of these countries are experiencing uh, a net migration rate. That means more people moving in, a positive net migration, which means more people moving in than leaving these countries. Uh, a lot of these uh, folks are coming from Eastern Europe and the former colonies. Um, so, for example, from to the UK, from places like India uh, and some parts of, of Africa, from France uh, to France, from um, its uh, holdings in the its former holdings in the Caribbean and North Africa and so forth. Uh, and that's pretty much the trend. And we'll see a map that indicates that as well. So, yeah, and we'll see that map right now, as a matter of fact. Uh, so let's talk about a little bit about the uh, migration. So migration to and within Europe. Most Europeans support limits on uh, unlimited immigration into, the, into Europe due to uh, high unemployment. And Europe does have a relatively high unemployment rate, uh, and particularly for young people, um, which is uh, because Europe really does have a very highly educated uh, workforce, and it's unfortunate that they have such high uh, unemployment rates. And so uh, unlimited immigration into Europe is really frowned upon. Guest workers. Um, came to Germany uh, in particular, but came to other parts of Europe as well, uh, began to come to Europe in the, 19, uh, uh, in the 1960s uh, after World War II to help rebuild uh, the devastated uh, infrastructure and uh, uh, buildings and, uh, and uh, industries in Europe. And so uh, a lot came from uh, Turkey, Italy, and Greece and came to Germany, as well as uh, going to other parts of the uh, of Europe. Uh, many people have become citizens, and actually I should maybe explain a little bit more about guest workers. Guest workers are people who are invited to, are allowed to come to a country to work for a certain period of time. And, the, and for Germany, at the end of World War II, uh, guest workers were allowed to stay in the country for three years, and then they were supposed to go home. And it was typically only males that were allowed to come, um, and their families had to remain home. And the reason people came was they came to earn uh, earn uh, money, and then they sent the money back home in, in the form of remittances. Well, what happened in the case of Germany and some of the other countries in Europe, many of the guest workers ended up staying longer than the three years or longer than the allotted period of time, and they started to bring their families 
uh, over as well. Um, and so eventually a lot of these people became uh, citizens of their country. But there still remains a lot of uh, segregation and discrimination against immigrants uh, in, uh, throughout Europe, quite frankly, no matter where they're from. Um, and that has contributed to some racial problems that have occurred between them, uh, and particularly native Germans, between Turks and Germans. Uh, and I'll just give you a few figures that I found. Uh, 2.3 million uh, foreign-born uh, living in Germany, 10% of the population. In Switzerland, a foreign-born population makes up 16% of the population. In Belgium, about 8.2% of the population. And in the UK, about 6.5% of the population. So uh, not a huge numbers. Uh, when you think uh, the United States is probably around 10 or 11% of its population is foreign-born, um, maybe a little bit less than that. Uh, but certainly for uh, a region of the world that doesn't invite immigrants, um, uh, pretty large. Most recently, there's been an increase of migrants from the former colonies in Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean, as I mentioned before. And most of these folks end up going to uh, the countries uh, where they were uh, of their former colonial power. So, for example, uh, you can see to the United Kingdom, we have migrants coming from, um, from the Caribbean. We also have migrants coming uh, to uh, uh, to Spain from its former colonies in Spain. We have uh, migrants coming from uh, to France from its former colonies in Africa, as well as in Southeast Asia, and so forth. Um, so uh, a lot of movement. And then, of course, you can see we have a lot of movement from the Eastern European countries, the former Soviet countries, uh, coming into Western Europe as well uh, to seek opportunities. Um, so problems due to migration, uh, there's been the formation of, nation, of national parties. There's the French National Party or the French National Front. There's the Austrian National Front who support discrimination, discrimination against um, foreigners. Increased violence against foreigners as well has been occurring throughout the region. Um, and the foreigners themselves have been, uh, have been um, rebelling against their treatment. So we've seen in the, in the past several years uh, some riots that have occurred in France outside of, in the suburbs of, Fran of Paris, for example, uh, as a result of the, treat the, the uh, hostile treatment that the uh, migrants feel that they receive in France. A uh, similar situation in the UK also. Now I want to talk about something called the Shenzhen Agreement, and what's sometimes referred to as um, the geography of Fortress Europe. The Shenzhen Agreement is agreement between members of the European Union that allows people to travel within the member states without needing a passport. Up until this agreement, people needed a passport to pass through the different countries of Europe. So, for example, if you wanted to go from France into Belgium, you needed a passport. If you, needed, if you wanted to go from Belgium into the Netherlands, you needed a passport. That's no longer the case with the Shenzhen Agreement. As long as you are an EU citizen, you, are, you can pass through any of these countries without a passport. What this really has done, though, has brought about the formation of strict border controls between the European Union and, and non-EU countries. And this is what we refer to as, um, as the uh, Fortress Europe. So you can see on this map the countries in green are Shenzhen, what is referred to as Shenzhen land, 
land or those countries that have uh, signed on to the Shenzhen Agreement. And so you could pass between any of these countries without a passport as long as you're an EU citizen. Problems, uh, there are obviously are problems with the Shenzhen Agreement. Uh, countries like Italy and Spain have difficulty policing their shores. It's uh, very easy for migrants to, uh, or somewhat easy for migrants to uh, sn slip across the Mediterranean into Spain, uh, for example, or into Italy, for example, or even into Greece uh, from Africa uh, to get into these countries. And once they get into the, into, uh, the EU, uh, they uh, most likely can pass through the other countries without um, without with very few checks on their identity and so forth. Because, like I said, uh, most uh, you don't need a passport to pass between countries. So Germany has uh, uh, Germany has more lenient immigration policies than some of the other countries, and so they uh, allow more immigrants from outside of the region to come into their country. Uh, and then, of course, once uh, people get into Germany, they can pass into other countries as well. Illegal immigrants from Asia and Africa are dropped, as I mentioned, dropped on the beaches of Italy and Spain, then move through Europe and to find jobs in northern, northern Europe. And so that's a real problem. Now, I have the Canary Islands up here. And you might wonder, well, why do you have the Canary Islands? Canary Islands are really pretty interesting because they are uh, considered to be part of Spain. I mean, they have autonomy over their own territory, but uh, legally they're part of Spain. So the Canary Islands, if you can follow the cursor, are right down here off the northwest coast of Africa. And so it's very easy. They're actually only about, um, I think it's about 60 miles from the coast of Africa to the Canary Islands. And so a lot of people, a lot of illegal immigrants, will take boats to the uh, and slip into the Canary Islands. And once they're, once they're in the Canary Islands, then they can leave there by uh, by boat or by a plane, in most cases, to get to uh, Spain. And then once they're in Spain, obviously, uh, the, they're fairly free to move around Europe as well. And so that's why I had the Canary Islands. I should also mention there's been a lot of tragedies of people trying to get across the Mediterranean Sea into these countries. A lot of the, um, obviously, there's the illegal smugglers, smugglers that uh, take people across. And um, the people who are caught are very often, you know, they're forced to go back uh, to Africa. In some cases, the boats have sunk, uh, killing hundreds of people and things like that. So it's, it's a very, uh, in some cases, a very tragic situation. So these, uh, this is actually a photograph of some illegal immigrants uh, approaching the Canary Islands and then hopefully uh, being able to get into uh, Spain. And then this is the Czech Republic border with station to Germany. And in most cases, people will not have to stop here. They'll just pass through uh, if they have an EU license plate on their car uh, that would signify that they're uh, probably EU citizens. So let's talk a bit about the uh, urban landscapes of this region. Um, the, uh, as I mentioned, as I keep mentioning, high, highly urban, uh, as we saw in the data for this region, and the levels of urbanization declined from west to east. UK and Belgium uh, are, are highly urbanized, as are a lot of the other countries. As a matter of fact, the UK or England was the first urbanized country in the world. Uh, it's the first country that reached 50% uh, uh, of its population living in cities. Um, so uh, urbanization in this region uh, has a long history. It dates back to the Roman Empire. Um, 
Roman-controlled Europe, uh, cities were built as defensive settlements to protect Roman roads, the Roman road networks. Uh, cities such as London, Vienna, Rome, and Bucharest are all legacies of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire actually colonized much of Europe. And it's, I think that's something that most people don't really think too much about, or think, think of it at least in that context. Uh, but the Romans actually colonized much of Europe. And the reason they built cities, obviously, was to bring uh, things like agricultural surpluses to the cities to uh, be able to uh, ship back to Rome or to other parts of the, of the empire. And uh, these uh, cities were also places where they could store these surpluses and defend them, quite frankly. It's also places where they could have their military um, military uh, or have their army stationed in case of uprising throughout the empire. And, and that certainly what, uh, did occur. Uh, outside the uh, Roman cities, uh, many of the cities were founded uh, on the sea trade routes, cities such as Copenhagen, Berlin, and Stockholm. Um, so in European cities, they're actually quite fascinating, particularly those that uh, didn't receive a lot of damage during World War I and World War II. And many of the cities did receive uh, quite substantial damage. Uh, but you can see this is uh, an aerial view, view of uh, Grazzetto in Italy. And what you can actually see here is the old medieval part of the city surrounded by its walls that are still in existence. And you can see what's really interesting is obviously it's very densely packed together. Uh, the streets are uh, kind of, uh, um, you know, not laid out in a grid network so much as like we would expect. Um, and you can see that there are some parks and things also. Uh, so uh, densely settled areas, obviously, buildings set directly on the streets, uh, unlike in you know North America or even in some of the uh, newer parts of Europe where we have the setback, uh, the buildings are actually set back from the street. And you know, in the residential areas, you have your front yards and those sorts of things. That wasn't the case because you need to remember during the medieval people period, the way people got around was they walked for the most part. And so everything had to be densely spaced together. <coughs> During the Renaissance and Baroque period, uh, which lasted from about 1500 to 1800, there were more open spaces with wide streets, large gardens, uh, and monuments. Um, defensive structures uh, surrounded the city, uh, which cramped growth. And that obviously, uh, it's difficult for cities to expand much beyond uh, these walls. Um, especially if you're using these walls for defense. You don't want to be stuck out in here if a, an attacking army uh, would come by. Um, the industrial city, 1800 to the present, uh, fortifications, the, the walls were torn down in many European cities, and the creation of factories and industrial areas on the outskirts of the city started to spring up. And, uh, of course, later on, uh, up to the present, we start to see urban sprawl as well in many European cities. Um, so Europeans are really big on protecting their sense of place. And what we mean by that is this historic preservation, historical preservation. Um, and you, you'll find some beautiful areas uh, in, uh, in Europe and some of the old European cities. Um, so protecting that sense of place, protection of skylines. Uh, they in many cities, they restrict the heights of buildings in the inner city uh, so that you can actually see across the city. Uh, building of building of high-rise buildings out the, outside the city center. So it's actually interesting. Unlike in the United States, where you'll find 
the tallest structures in the central part of the city or in the, in the middle of the city where the highest land values are. In many European cities, you'll find the, the tallest structures uh, outside the city, actually, actually out in the suburbs, uh, which is somewhat different than you'll, obviously different than what you find here. Uh, in the rural areas, um, there's restrictions on um, new housing. Uh, in some cases, the restrictions include the new housing must use traditional building materials and design. There's regulations on billboards. And in some areas, there's restrictions on fencing and land cover. Uh, so very tightly controlling and trying to uh, preserve that kind of sense of place that uh, we see in this image here of uh, European city. Also, in many cities, uh, particularly in the UK, uh, they try to uh, limit urban sprawl. Uh, by uh, creating green boundaries around the city. And what that means is you can't, uh, the city can expand so far, and then beyond that, uh, beyond that uh, boundary, it has to be green space. Um, and so you cannot build within that green space. And any development that occurs out has to then occur beyond that green space. Uh, and so that sometimes that will limit urban sprawl to a certain extent because if you if you have a wide green belt around your city, uh, what that means is it's going to be more expensive to use transportation if you live beyond that green belt to come into the central part of the city if that's where your job happens to be. So it does help to control urban sprawl in that sense. Uh, so and this is Berlin, uh, as you can see, and this is kind of a, I get, we're calling it a microcosm of Europe, uh, at least of a European city. And some of the things that European cities have experienced. Uh, obviously, during World War II, uh, tremendous amount of destruction in, in Berlin. The city essentially pretty much had to be totally rebuilt. Um, and it was uh, very much rebuilt in the old fashion uh, up until uh, relatively modern times, uh, particularly after the uh, collapse of the Berlin Wall. And so this is the Berlin Wall that uh, divided Eastern Europe I'm sorry. Well, it did divide Eastern Europe uh, from Western Europe, but uh, specifically, it divided the Soviet-controlled area of, of uh, Berlin uh, from the Allied-control period uh, uh, portion of Berlin. So uh, we would uh, find the uh, the uh, former Soviet-controlled part of the city in here, and the former Allied-controlled part of the city out in here, and this would be the Berlin Wall. That separated the two, and we'll talk more about that uh, when we talk about the um, um, the um, I'm sorry the the Cold War and so forth and how it impacted uh, Europe after World War II. And so this is the Berlin Wall, as you can see, uh, and this is the collapse of the Berlin Wall in the 1990s early 1990s as people are tearing down the Berlin Wall as the Soviet Union collapsed and uh, communist governments across Eastern Europe also collapsed about the same time and people are tearing down the wall uh, signifying the unification of Germany uh, from East Germany to West Germany and the unification of Berlin in particular in this case. And this is this would be a picture of the Berlin Wall as it existed during the Cold War period from the uh, the Berlin Wall was built in the early 1960s. Uh, I can actually remember it as a kid watching it on the news as uh, the, uh, the communists were building this wall. Uh, I'm going to say probably around 1962, if my memory serves me correctly. I, I have to tell you honestly, 
uh, you know, as a person who grew up through pretty much the entire Cold War, I never expected the Cold War to end. I never expected the Soviet Union to collapse. I never expected to see the reunification of Germany and the, and the actually the reunification of much, much of Europe, Eastern Europe and Western Europe, coming together. So, and I think a lot of people, a lot of people were totally surprised. Uh, not only that it happened, but also the uh, uh, how rapidly it occurred. So, uh, as I said, this this wall essentially stood from the early 1960s up to the uh, 1989, 1990, sometime in that right around that time period, probably before a lot of you were born, which is kind of a scary thought for me, actually. Okay, so we've, we've taken a look at the population geography a bit, and we've taken a look at some of the urban geography. Let's take a look at the uh, cultural uh, geography of this, of this region, and it's quite fascinating. Uh, and, you know, we call it a cultural mosaic uh, because we have all these different little pieces. Uh, actually, if you would think of looking at this linguistic map, it, it kind of reminds you of a, of a mosaic and so forth and how you would see different colors in, in the mosaic. Um, so uh, we have a couple different language families. Uh, uh, probably most people in this region, or actually most people in this region, do speak um, uh, a Germanic language. Okay, and you can see the Germanic languages are in the dark color, the brown brownish color, and it's actually indo interesting because Germanic and the, uh, languages are also part of the Indo-European. Uh, family of languages. So Germanic is actually a subfamily of the Indo-European languages. And you can see, obviously, German is one of those countries, Dutch, uh, Flemish, English. Uh, maybe some of you never realized that English is actually a uh, Germanic language. And of course, the Scandinavian languages are also uh, a, a Germanic language. Uh, and what's interesting here is, once again, I want you to think about the divide uh, of the uh, of the of uh, the Alpine Mountain system, and you can clearly see the divide between the Romance languages to the south and the Germanic languages to the north, uh, especially between Italy uh, and uh, Germany in the northern part. And so again, another divide kind of. Now, as far as Romance languages, um, we have. Um, um, Obviously, we have Italian, we have French, we have Spanish, we have Portuguese, are all part of the Romance language family. And, and as I said, mostly spoken in the southern part. Um, let me go back a little bit to the Germanic languages. So as I mentioned, they're spoken in the British Isles, Scandinavia, and, and mostly central part of Europe here. Um, just to give you an idea of some numbers, there's 90 million native speakers uh, of German in Europe. And German is actually spoken in Germany, Austria, Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, and Eastern Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland is actually a pretty interesting country because it has uh, four official languages in such a small country. Um, so we have, um, and we have German, obviously, we have French, we have Italian, and we have something called Romance. And those are all official languages in Switzerland. Uh, there are Germanic, uh, German-speaking minorities in Eastern European countries as well. English uh, is spoken by uh, 60 million native speakers throughout Europe, uh, and it's the most common second language in Europe. So actually, most people in Europe can actually speak English, and most people can actually speak it fairly well. Uh, but as I mentioned, in other parts of the world, when you go to Europe, 
uh, people always like you, especially the French. They always want you to speak French you know, if you can. Uh, and if you at least make the effort to speak French, uh, they're very happy, right? And they're very happy to assist you. Uh, but, uh, you know, most people like you to at least attempt to speak their native language, but the English is understood throughout pretty much all of Europe. Um, English really can be considered a mixed language. Much of the vocabulary in the language comes from French uh, due to the Norman invasion, and then, of course, uh, uh, parts of it come from the German as well. So it really is very much a mixed language. Other German, Germanic languages, as I mentioned before, are the Dutch, spoken in the Netherlands and northern Belgium. Flemish is actually uh, 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 mostly a Dutch language. Uh, and then we have um, about 20 million speakers, Norwegian, Swedish, and Danish, uh, which are all closely related, are also other Germanic languages. Now, uh, as in, now let's move on to the Romance languages. Uh, they come from the dialects of Latin. They're spoken throughout Southern Europe. Italian has about 60 million native speakers spoken in Italy, Switzerland, and the French island of Corsica, okay, um, down in here. Um, and then we also have numerous dialects, uh, some of which are uh, uh, people who speak some of these other dialects really can't even understand uh, one another. French has uh, 55 million native speakers. Uh, it's spoken in France, Western Switzerland, and Southern Belgium, and that's the Wallons down in here. So you can see Belgium really has a language divide uh, here, and that's created some political problems in the country. Uh, the country is actually pretty much split in half between the Dutch speakers in the north and the Walloons or the French speakers in the south. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about the political geography of the region. Uh, there's different dialects of French, of course. Um, there's the language d'oil, uh, which it's the official uh, dialect, I guess, if you want an official language, and spoken in northern France. And there's the langu uh, language d'Arc, which is spoken in southern France. And I'm sorry, my French is not very good, so uh, hopefully you understood what I was saying there. Spanish has about 25 million native speakers, obviously spoken throughout Spain. And then other Romance languages include Portuguese, as I mentioned before, with the 12, about 12 million speakers in Portugal, Catalan, 3 million speakers around Barcelona in Spain, and Romanian is actually um, also a, Ro a Romance language, uh, has 24 million speakers in Romania and Moldova. Now the difference is, and we'll talk more about this in a little bit when we talk about Slavic languages, uh, Romanians actually use something called the Cyrillic alphabet. Okay, and like I said, we'll talk a bit more about that in just a few minutes. So, uh, Slavic languages. Let's talk a bit about the Slavic languages. And you can see the Slavic languages are this kind of color here. And we have the Southern Slavic languages that are spoken down in this region. And then we have the Northern Slavic languages up in this area, Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia. Um, so, um, I, I guess, uh, uh, Northern Slav languages, as I said, include Polish with about 35 million speakers, Czech with about 14 million speakers, Slovakian with another 14 million speakers. The Southern Slav languages or Slovakian languages are the Serbo-Croatians with about, um, down in this area, uh, with about 14 million speakers, and uh, uh, the Bulgarians with about 11 million speakers and uh, Slovenians with about 2 million speakers. Okay, so are Bulgarians, 
and then our Slovenians as well. Okay, um, there's problems uh, uh, due to two different writing styles. The Latin alphabet is used by the languages with Roman Catholic ties, so that would be in uh, Poland and uh, in, a, uh, in Slovenia, okay? And of course, uh, the Romance languages and Germanic languages also use the Latin alphabet uh, as we do. The Cyrillic alphabet is a writing system based on Greek characters, and it's used in areas with Eastern Orthodox uh, influence. So those countries such as Serbia, Bulgaria, and so forth. Okay. Um, some of the other minor European languages, Indo-European languages, include the Celtic languages, which includes the Irish and the Scots, and the Welsh and the Bretons. And the Bretons are live right in this area right here on the Breton Peninsula. Imagine that. Okay. And obviously, the uh, uh, we also have the Irish and the Scots and the Welsh. So the Welsh, the Irish, and the Scots. Okay. Uh, so those are our um, uh, Celtic languages. All, all these languages are really dying out uh, because of the lack of use and because English and French are really taking over in these areas. Um, some groups are trying to maintain the, uh, the life of these languages, but they're really facing uh, a difficult challenge um, because so few people across the globe would uh, speak these languages. Uh, then we have the Hellenic languages, which include Greek. Okay, so down in this area, the Hellenic languages. Um, we have spoken in Greece and in Cyprus, and Cyprus is right here, the island of Cyprus. I'm sorry, Cyprus is over in here, I'm sorry, over in here, as you can see. Uh, and you can also see that the island is split, so we have the Greek and the Turks on the other side, as I think we mentioned when we talked about uh, North Africa and Southwest Asia. Ten million speakers of Greek. Okay, then we have the Baltic languages. Okay, which would be up in this area, uh, Latvian, Lithuania, okay, um, and about four, na four million native speakers. Then we have Albanian languages in Albania. Imagine that, right? In Albania, with about four, uh, I'm sorry, three million speakers. And then some of our other languages, uh, we have Uralic languages, uh, which is Hungarian. And guess where that's spoken? I bet you can't guess. Well, in Hungary. But there's also some people in Romania who speak Hungarian as well. Um, 13 million native speakers spoken in Hungary, Romania, some people in Slovakia, and the former Yugoslavia as well. Then we also have Finnish um, as well. And then we have the Altaic languages, which is really Turkish in some areas of Bulgaria, right in this area, as you can see from the map, down in uh, this area as well. Uh, and then, uh, obviously, on Cyprus, over in here, as I pointed out earlier, and uh, also spoken by about 1.5 million guest workers in Germany. So uh, not an insubstantial number by any means. And then what's really interesting is the Basque language. The Basque language is spoken in northeastern Spain and southwestern France, so right in this area here. And I pointed out the Basque country uh, earlier. Um, 
The Basque language is really unrelated to any other language, and it's believed to be derived from prehistoric European speech. And what's what's believed to happen is, as other people, as the Basque were settled in what we would refer to the Basque today, are their prehistoric ancestors that settled in, you know, were settled in Europe. As more and more people moved into Europe from other parts of the world, either from Africa, from Central Asia, and so forth, the Basque people began to move up into the mountains and essentially isolated themselves from contact with other groups and maintained their language, which is not spoken by any other group. And they've been able to maintain that language uh, for essentially uh, millennia. And there's approximately 600,000 speakers of Basque uh, living in this area. Uh, it's actually interesting. I, and as I told you in my introduction of myself, I'm very interested in cycling. And I watch a lot of cycling races like the Tour de France, the Tour de Suisse, and other races and things like that. And there's a huge cycling team, huge, um, there's a cycling team, let's put it that way, uh, that's sponsored by, um, uh, uh, the name of the team is Uskadi Uskatel, which is the, uh, and they're from the Basque country. And Uskadi Uskatel is actually the uh, Basque country's uh, telecom uh, company. So it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Uh, to see that, uh, uh, to see those sorts of things play out in places that you don't normally think about um, that. Uh, because the Basque, uh, actually the Basque language is Uskadi. Uh, and so that's why they call it Uskadi Uskatel. Uh, let's talk about the religious uh, diversity because it is a very uh, diverse uh, uh in religion as well, and there's been a lot of problems with religion throughout history in Europe. Uh, that's created a lot of war and things like that. So we'll talk about uh, the geographies of religion, past and present. The schism, if you prefer, or the break between the Western and Eastern uh, Eastern Christianity. Division of, of, in 1054 of the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Church. So you can see we have Roman Catholicism in this area. Okay, and this line actually illustrates the uh, split between the Roman Catholic region of Europe and the Eastern Orthodox Eastern Orthodox region of Europe. So to these, uh, this would be Eastern Orthodoxy, and it's, you know, it could be Greek Orthodoxy, Armenian Orthodoxy. Uh, when we get into Russia, we'll see that there's Russian Orthodoxy and so forth. But they're all very closely related to the Eastern Orthodox Church. And then to the West, we have the Roman Catholic countries. Um, so this has really uh, caused the different alphabets to be used for languages within each of the different churches' sphere, sphere of uh, influence. So as I mentioned, in the Roman Catholic regions, we use the Latin alphabet. In the Eastern Orthodox region, they use the Cyrillic alphabet. The effects of this division can, be, uh, can still be felt in current political problems, especially in Eastern Europe. Um, uh, because the, the because you can see these are where the, the religions come together. And you can see in some places they're actually, uh, we have them mixed together uh, in very close proximity. We have Christianity, Protestantism mixed with Roman Catholicism and things like that. And throughout history, this has, had create, has created some serious problems. Um, there's also, we also have Islam that has come into the area. I think I pointed this out a bit when we talked about Southwest Asia and North Africa, and especially on the Balkan Peninsula, uh, as Islam diffused onto the Balkan Peninsula. 
uh, European uh, uh, the, the Europeans in, uh, began their invasion of Islamic empires to regain Jerusalem in 10, 10, 1095. Uh, obviously, that was known as the Crusades. Um, however, uh, the Europeans were unsuccessful, and they were actually pushed back uh, by the Muslims, uh, and particularly under the Ottoman Turks, uh, who captured Constantinople, okay, on the Euro European mainland, which is today referred to Ist as Istanbul, uh, so right in this area, uh, and continued to move into parts of East, what is to, what we sometimes refer to as Eastern Europe, Europe, particularly into uh, Bulgaria, but especially on the um, uh, Balkan Peninsula. And then, of course, um, the Moors, uh, we can see this Moorish influence in Spain. Uh, in the, uh, the Moors actually occupied much of the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal, for close to 500 years. Um, and then uh, their influence was sp uh, spread throughout the region. And the Moors were finally pushed out of Spain and Portugal and the Iberian Peninsula around 1492. And that's when um, the Roman uh, Catholic uh, uh, nobility took over, the nobility that was closely associated with the Pope in Rome. Now we have the Protestant Revolt that began in the 16th century when religious leaders such as Martin Luther and John Calvin split from the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, this brought about many wars, religious wars, including the Thirty, Year wars, uh, 30 Years' War, uh, where uh, approximately 50% of the population of Central and Western Europe was killed or died from its aftereffects. So that would be famine, might be disease, and things like that. The religious differences con continue today between Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland. Uh, because Northern Ireland, as you can see here, was, well, actually the entire island of Ireland was colonized by the English. And what we refer to today as the Republic of Ireland gained its independence uh, from England in, the, in 1921. But the UK, uh, they had a uh, special election here for pe the people of Northern Ireland to decide if they wanted to be part of Ireland or if they wanted to be part of the UK. And because there was a larger number of Protestants at that time living here, they voted to uh, remain part of the UK. Uh, and as the population of the Irish uh, began to outnumber uh, the English in Northern Ireland, that's when we started to see a lot of problems, a lot of terrorist attacks and, and really fighting between the Protestants and the Irish in what is sometimes referred to as the Troubles. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about the political geography of the region. So, as I said, um, uh, we can also talk about the geography of Judaism. As I mentioned before, Jews uh, in Europe were expelled from Palestine during the Roman era, uh, uh, when the Romans controlled uh, what is today the Levant area or, or the uh, Palestine. And so Jews were expelled by the Romans and uh, uh, spread across northern Europe and then eventually into Spain. Um, so, as I said, they settled in the Mediterranean, especially in more Spain. And then, guess what? After uh, they lived in relative peace uh, with the Moors, who were Muslim, and then when the Roman Catholic uh, nobility came back into power, they were expelled from Spain uh, during what was referred to as the Inquisition. And so uh, many Jews, had, obviously they had to flee this area, 
and they couldn't find um, places to settle in uh, much of Roman Catholic um, Europe. And they were actually invited to come to Eastern Europe and to some of the more, uh, what is, uh, uh, Orthodox areas, Eastern Orthodoxy areas. Uh, and to this area here, as you can see, that's uh, labeled on this map as the former Jewish Pale. And so many ended up living in this area in Eastern European, uh, in the Eastern European area. So many Jews settled in the Pale, located in Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, and Romania, this area was the Jewish homeland outside of Palestine. Um, and unfortunately, because of the Jewish settlement in the Pale, the Nazis were able to eradicate a large number of these people um, during World War II. Uh, in 1935, it's estimated that the population of Jews in, this, in the Jewish Pale was somewhere around 9.5 million Jews. And in today, there's less than 2 million Jews that live in this area. And so many Jews were killed during World War II. So we've already seen a lot of the contemporary geography of Europe. Uh, so I'm not going to talk too much about that. Uh, religion really is um, not all that important to many people in Europe. Uh, much of Europe has become secularized. Uh, that's where organized religion does not have a great influence it once had. You can see Roman Catholicism, as I pointed out before, mostly in the southern part of the of the area, and you can see the purple parts of the area. Protestantism and these brown parts, okay, so the UK, Germany, uh, Scandinavian uh, Peninsula, as well as Latvian, uh, Estonia. Uh, Eastern Orthodox, uh, you can see in the uh, kind of yellowish color here, and then the areas of Islam. And I should actually should mention that Islam has actually diffused to many other parts. Uh, they just aren't uh, large enough numbers to show on the map. So we'll we certainly have uh, uh, Islam in Spain, France, uh, certainly in the UK from migrants coming into these various uh, countries and things like that. So let's not think that the Muslims are only located in, uh, in the certain areas that show up on this map. So talking about European, uh, you can see some of the uh, religious landscapes, obviously the Jewish synagogue in Berlin, uh, a little Istanbul in uh, Germany. You see uh, things are written in uh, Turkish uh, so that people can understand. Okay. Um, globalization, uh, you can see um, since World War II, Europe has been uh, really saturated with American culture through music, television, and consumer goods. Different countries take this invasion. Uh, differently. The United Kingdom, Spain, Italy, and Hungary have accepted it pretty readily. Uh, France and Germany have taken measure to measures to prevent the invasion, such as the things, su things such as subsidization of filmmaking to have films actually made in those countries rather than importing uh, films from the United States. Uh, the French actually, in a, uh, as part of their cultural nationalism, I guess, 40% uh, uh, of French music must be played uh, on the radio, it can't all be American music or British music and so forth. 40% of it must be French music um, and so forth. Uh, so you can see some of the influence. And obviously some of this um, globalization has, and particularly with migration, has been uh, resisted by certain groups. I mentioned the nationalist parties in many countries, uh, the neo-Nazis and the skinheads and, and groups like that. And then obviously you can see the American influence in other parts of um, 
of Europe as well. And you can see this throughout Europe, quite frankly. So I think that's where we'll stop uh, on uh, for this lecture. And when we come back uh, for the third lecture on Europe, we'll take a look at the geopolitical framework as well as the economic geography of Europe.